Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you all once again this morning. Thank you again for the privilege of being able to bring God's Word to you this morning. Our text today is, as you, last week I preached on the Gospel of Mark, and I'm preaching on the Gospel of Mark again this morning, so you can see I like the Gospel of Mark. It's a man's gospel. Uh, Our text this morning is chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. This is God's word for us this morning, so let's pay close heed to it. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. (coughs) But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace. Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Please pray with me. Father, this is your word. This is your word for us this morning. You caused it to be written. And Lord, we thank you for this beautiful story of Christ stilling the tempest, which tells us that that there is a theology of Christians in suffering and trials to be remembered and not forgotten. Give us wisdom and discernment this morning to learn and to apply this important lesson in our faith. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You think you know Jesus. You have a relationship with him. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He's your friend. You've talked to him. You commune with Him. He comforts you when you're sad. He provides for you when you're in need. He reassures you when you're in doubt. He's always there when you call upon Him. He meets your needs. He does what's best for you. And then something happens suddenly things start to unravel. You lose your job. You lose a loved one. You get sick. There's conflict in the church. Your family is in disarray. Your dreams and aspirations come crashing down around your ears. You don't get that promotion. And you think, Jesus, this isn't what you're supposed to do. You know, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. 
Jesus, don't you care? You find yourself in a storm. Some of you this morning are in a storm. I don't know, maybe most of you. This week has been a storm. And nothing about this week makes any sense. Do you know John Newton's prayer? A prayer answered by crosses? You know, the prayer of that old slave trader turned pastor, it goes like this, and I quote, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I tremblingly, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. Unquote. Now, if you don't know this poem, of John Newton's. It's also a hymn. Google it. Get it on the web. Print it out. Stick it in your Bibles. I'm telling you, it will help you through many a trial. It will help you through many a storm. You see, that's what this story of Christ stilling the storm is all about. It's about life's trials and how we as Christians should deal with them. So as we begin looking, to, looking at this text this morning, let me just make a, a few general comments about it. You know, each of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this account of Jesus stilling the storm. It's an important miracle, not least because I think it recollects uh, to us the power of God displayed over nature in some of the great miracles of the Old Testament. For example, the parting of the waters of the Red Sea. I think it provides another demonstration you know, that Mark gives us here. Of the, it, he identifies Jesus with Yahweh of the Old Testament. It demonstrates that Jesus is God, that he can control the weather, that he can control nature. Now, I want you to notice in this, in this passage that this little account is it's also vivid. 
with many little eyewitness details. Remember last week I said that, you know, Mark followed Peter around with a notebook, writing down what Peter saw and heard. And Peter was an eyewitness of most of the Lord's public ministry. Now the first eyewitness account here is is one in verse 36. Look there. We see this curious little detail that they took Jesus along just as he was. Which apparently, I don't know, I think it means that Jesus was taken directly from the boat from which he had been teaching the crowds along the, the lake shore without returning him to shore. Something an eyewitness would remember, but no one else would think to add. You know, a similar detail, not picked up again in the account, is that there were other boats with them as they began crossing the lake, and were left to wonder what happened to the other boats in the storm. Mark says nothing about them. Again, I think it's an eyewitness account. And then there's that strange little detail here, that Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, says here, on a cushion. Again, just a little eyewitness detail. Now, I mention all this because, you see, these sorts of details, they don't advance the plot here. They don't develop any of the characters. They're basically irrelevant. They're unnecessary to the flow of the story. And I think that's what gives this story the marks of something that actually happened. And it's being reported by someone who was actually there. In other words, we can know that this story which is all about the power of Jesus, really happened. It's a true story. Now, in calm weather, people say that a journey across the Sea of Galilee, depending on, upon one's destination along the far shore, it could take roughly an hour or two. But this lake is notorious for sudden and severe squalls. The surface of the Sea of Galilee, it's about 700 feet below sea level. And on several sides, bordered by steep hills, uh, it's, it's bordered by steep hills, including the Golan Heights. Now, this interchange between cooler air from the heights and the warmer air coming up from the surface of the lake, it creates conditions in which winds sweep down the ravines and, and, and it whips up unusually large waves for a lake that size. It says in verse 38 that Jesus is fast asleep, even in the uproar of the storm. I think it's, which is a testimony that he's no doubt exhausted by his ministry. By the way, this is the only passage in the Gospels where we read of the Lord sleeping. And the fact that these disciples who made their living on the waters of this lake, were so afraid, I think it indicates the severity of the storm. It was a big storm. This this desperate and, and I think we might think, disrespectful rebuke of Jesus by the disciples in verse 38, it's almost certainly a verbatim recollection of what they said. See, this is the way people speak when they're terrified. This word for rebuke in verse 39, it's the same word used earlier by Mark when the Lord 
rebuke the evil spirits in people. You know, the Lord speaks to the lake as if it were simply an unruly heckler. You know, I think a good paraphrase of what he said is quiet, shut up. You know, whether, whether evil spirits or the forces of nature, they're all subject to his command. But power over nature even more starkly reveals Jesus' divine authority. You know, there are remarkable parallels between this verse and Psalm 107, 23 through 32, which Mike read earlier. There in Psalm 107, the one who stills the storm is Yahweh himself. Now in verse 41, the presence of the supernatural terrifies the disciples just as, and I say even more than the storm had. Even the prospect of their own death was not as discomforting to them as the presence of God in their midst. And so as the text ends, I think we're left with the question, in the midst of this storm, will these men put their faith, put their trust in Jesus? How should they respond to this serious trial that they're experiencing? So let's get into the boat with Jesus and his disciples and see what we can learn here. You know, this story, this, this historical narrative is in the first place, it's a revelation of Jesus himself. It's a demonstration of his divine authority. It's a demonstration of his power over the forces of nature. And that's really important for us to see here. But dear ones, this story is more than that. It's entirely proper to treat this passage as a lesson for us regarding the trials of our lives, the sorrows, the fears, the confusion which we have to endure in this world. You know, Jesus asked his disciples immediately after calming the lake, have you still no faith? So Jesus is interested not only in the facts about himself, but in the implication of those facts for us, for his disciples. You see, what happens here, the Lord turns this miracle into an important lesson about my faith and your faith in trial, in tribulation, in frustration, in fear, in the storms of life. You know, what's our faith going to look like when things suddenly go south? When we find ourselves in a situation like these disciples found themselves in. You know, I think if there is a single and simple lesson to be learned from this narrative of the stilling of the storm, I think it's best captured by that old Anglican bishop, Bishop J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, sight, sense, and feeling make even believers very poor theologians. Sight, sense, and feeling make even believers very poor theologians. And he goes on, he says, the size of the waves and the fury of the wind, the sight of the water accumulating in the bottom of the boat, 
and of the boat sinking deeper into the waters of the lake made the disciples forget almost everything they had already learned about Jesus. Not everything, for they at least knew enough to wake up the Lord and cry out to Him. But they did so after the manner of a desperate appeal to their last resort and in a spirit of despairing fear. Master, Master, we're going to drown. You know, I think sitting here, dry and, and undisturbed, I think many of us may well think poorly of the disciples. You know, I think we might smugly say, why didn't they just put two and two together? You know, the one who had miraculously healed a leper, the one who had driven demons out of men, obviously wasn't going to drown in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Why didn't one of them just say, not to worry, let's just sit here and see what happens? But you see, no one thought like that. No one said that. And I think far too often, you see, you and I are just like them. We're just as forgetful. We are just as mesmerized by the waves when our trials come. You know, it's true. And we see the waves. We hear the wind. We sense the danger. And our trouble consumes us in the same way. And though we're Christians, we appeal to the Lord only as a kind of desperate afterthought. Why aren't you doing something, Lord? Can't you see I'm drowning here? You see, we cannot hear our biblical doctrine. We forget our theology. We forget our Christology, what we know to be true about Jesus Christ. That cannot be heard in our souls over the moaning of the wind and the crashing of the waves. And you see, here's the point. Here's the lesson. There is a theology for Christians for you and me, in suffering. It's to be remembered and not forgotten. And I think that theology is clearly depicted here in this account of Christ stilling the storm. You know, one of the best definitions of personal faith that I've ever run into lately is this. Faith is confidence in Christ as able to act suitably to the occasion. Faith is confidence in Christ as able to act suitably to the occasion. And I think that's true in three particular respects, all of which are highlighted in this account of the calming of the storm. So let's take a quick look at those. First, the troubles which so much disturbed and distressed the disciples were the Lord's doing. Look at that. Look at verse uh, 35. It was the Lord's idea to take a boat across the lake. Wasn't Peter's idea? Wasn't John's idea? It was the Lord's idea. You see, they would never have been in this pickle. They would never have been on the lake that night, but for the Lord's decision. You see, that was the Lord's decision. That was the Lord's doing. We know he was tired, he was exhausted, 
had to get away from the crowds. So it was the Lord's needs, it was the Lord's purposes that had put the disciples in this difficulty. So given that, what do you think the response of the disciples should have been? Well, let me just maybe suggest this. You know, had the disciples had the faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, which, by the way, Jesus had just taught about that that same day, you know, these disciples, they would have come to Jesus in the boat. And they would have said, not Master, Master, we're going to drown, but something like, you know, maybe, Lord, we're going to just sit back and see how you're going to deal with this rather interesting situation. You know, knowing that these troubles had been ordered for them by the Lord. You know, think about that. You know, if the Lord could still a great storm by merely rebuking the wind and the waves, is it not obvious that he could have prevented the storm from rising in the first place? You know, he could have ordered up glassy, smooth waters. He could have ordered up a bit of a tailwind. You know, if you find yourself in a storm, your merciful Savior has had a hand in that. And here's the deal. Faith knows that. Sight, sense, and feeling, forget it. And here's the thing. You know, knowing that, knowing that, I think, is, is a very large part of the hope and peace and the strength that we need in the storms of life. You know, my experience has been that it's been a large part of my deliverance from various trials just to know that this is the Lord's plan that this is the Lord's purpose, that it was his plan for me to pass through these waters, whatever those waters are. You know, he who loves us with an everlasting love could have kept us from every one of our trials, every one of our heartbreaks, every one of our dangers. That he has not, I think, is the clearest indication that he intends for us to face this trouble or to face that trouble. Dear ones, nature is powerful. But a storm doesn't love you. A storm is indifferent to you. But God is all-powerful over storms. And he is filled with an untamable love for each of us. So I think that's one, one thing. The troubles which so much disturb us are the Lord's doing. That's a very, very valuable lesson for us to learn. Well, second, I think the troubles which so frightened these disciples actually pose no real danger to them at all with Christ present with them as he was. You know, I think in the aftermath of this storm, it's clear enough what a blunder the disciples made and why they had nothing to say when the Lord effectively rebuked them for their lack of faith. See, they had been terrified for their lives while the master of heaven and earth <laughs> lay a few feet away, sleeping peacefully on a cushion. 
Now, they didn't know everything about Jesus of Nazareth, but they knew enough by now to know that he was the Messiah. They had considered it the most sensible thing in the world to leave their livelihoods to serve him. You know, they had witnessed all his miracles, all of his healings, casting out of demons. Did they really think that God's plan for the world would come to an end because of some unforeseen accident, Jesus drowning while crossing the Sea of Galilee? You know, couldn't, couldn't they see that no boat ferrying the Son of God the Savior of the world was going to sink. Couldn't they see that, that there was no safer spot in all this great universe than in that boat, on that lake, on that night? The answer is no. They couldn't see any of that because while the eyes of their bodies were wide open and terror-struck by the sight of the waves, see the eyes of their souls, their faith, was slammed shut. And we can too, uh, far too often be just like them, just like the disciples on the lake that night. What we can see with our ears, or see with our eyes, hear with our ears, mesmerizes us. We forget that our Savior promised that He would never leave us. He would never forsake us. And that he will be with us to the end of the world. That he will always provide a way of escape from our tests and trials. And that he knows how to deliver the godly from their troubles. God forgive us. That we can sometimes think and behave as if the Lord Christ, the master and commander, was on the far side of the world. Unaware of our circumstances. Uncaring of our plight instead of in the stern of the very boat in which we're rowing through the storm. See, what a difference it would have made if the disciples had exercised their faith that night on the lake. You know, I, I, I'm not sure, but I can tell you one thing. They would have felt alive. You know, it would have been exhilaration. It would have been vitality, certainly not fear, that would have filled their hearts. You know, I, I was thinking about this. They would have felt and they would have written home, saying what Winston Churchill told his mother in a letter from Cuba after participating in a battle in 1895. Churchill wrote home and told his mother, there is nothing more exhilarating than being shot at and missed. <laughs> That's exhilarating. I know. <laughs> Dear ones, I, don't, I, I have no idea what storms you're rowing through this morning. I'm, I'm rowing through my own storms. But I do know that whatever your troubles and sorrows and dangers may be, if you see the Lord at your side, if you see heaven before your face, if you see the angels camped around you, if you see Jesus in the boat with you, 
If you see that, then suddenly instead of fear and, and creeping despair, you'll, you'll discover that there is a certain exhilaration in being shot at and missed in the trials of life. So I think that's the second thing. The troubles which so frighten us, they really pose no danger to us with Christ present with us as he is. And finally, one more thing, three-point sermon. The troubles and dangers which so disturbed and distressed the disciples were, in fact, primarily opportunities for Christ to manifest himself and reveal his glory among his people. Now, you can't tell me that when all this was over, you know, with the lake calm, the wind now just a, a gentle zephyr, with the adrenaline still pumping through their veins from what they had just gone through, you can't tell me that even one of these disciples would rather have stayed behind and missed out on all of that. Not on your life. See, what they had seen would stay with them vivid in their memories to strengthen them, to encourage them. They would take that experience with them to their graves. But don't you see, no great demonstration of divine power calming a storm can be given without a storm to calm. See, these disciples would never have seen what they had seen had there not been waves and wind for this Savior to rebuke. Samuel Rutherford, a great Puritan, once wrote that the Lord ties terrible knots just to have the pleasure of loosening them off from those he loves. He lays nets and sets traps only that he may get a chance of healing broken bones and setting the terrified free. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that exhilarating when that happens? Dear ones, what a completely different, wonderfully different way to look at the troubles that we face. To see them as opportunities for the Lord to show himself to us as our deliverer, as our savior, as our friend, as our all-powerful protector. And you see, this isn't just some psychological ploy some trick that we we sort of play on ourselves when we do that. No, this is nothing more or less than the practice of the truth. It's the playing out, if you will, of true faith. See, all of the disciples straining at the oars, all of their worry and fear was nothing but the setting of the stage for the Lord Christ to thrill them with his power and glory to show them what a Savior and what a salvation they had got in the Son of God. And our troubles are no different. They're the same. And they will have the same thrilling, exhilarating effect if we practice faith in the midst of them. And we see the Lord rising up to help us. Well, as I wrap this up, I want you to notice one more important thing here in this passage. Notice that the Lord doesn't simply encourage us here. He actually rebukes us. 
because of, I think, because of our modern sort of therapeutic way of dealing with people who have failed or who are in trouble, I think we might miss this in the Lord's words here. But he rebukes, rebukes these men for their lack of faith. You know, <laughs> we might have thought that he would put his arm around Peter or John and, I don't know, maybe tossle James soaking wet hair and say with a smile, come on guys, where do you think I am, chopped liver? You guys cracked me up. You know, you didn't have to worry. Of course, I'm sorry I didn't wake up sooner. I could have stopped this storm before it started. But he didn't say that, did he? Instead, he said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Or to put it another way, after all you've seen me do and heard me say, do you still not understand anything at all? You know, we all need encouragement in many ways. The Lord gives us to that, gives us that always in abundance. But from time to time, we also need to hear that our faithless ways, especially in the light of the Lord's many demonstrations of his faithfulness to us over the years of our lives, that our faithless ways are inexcusable. They're a sin. We must repent of, have to put it to death. We have a spark of honor in our hearts. You know, there is no excuse for us not to understand that our troubles are no accident, but have been brought to us by the Lord himself. That he is with us in and through them, and that He we, we cannot sink so long as he's there to save us. That our trials are, are opportunities to thrill to thrill us as he, as he thrilled the disciples that long ago night. We need rebuke. And that rebuke, I think, is a powerful encouragement in itself. You know, there's a young woman I know. She's a marvelous, marvelous songwriter. Uh, she attends a big PCA church in Atlanta, Georgia, Perimeter PCA. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. Her name is Laura Story. Uh, <coughs> Some years ago, suddenly, you know, out of the blue, during a routine checkup, doctors found a brain tumor in her husband, Martin. It's pretty serious. They originally thought that it was inoperable, they wasn't going to make it. And as you might expect, Laura and Martin were devastated. And they had the same questions these disciples had, the same questions that you and I have all the time. Why, Lord? Why us? Why didn't you just fix it, God? You're all powerful. You're all loving. Just fix it. Lord, don't you care about us? Are you asleep? What's happening to us? Well, that news started a long journey for this young couple, and it included lots of things. Surgery, chemo, ups and downs, good days, bad days. And through it all, Laura's story and her husband learned the lessons that we find in this short narrative of Christ stilling the storm. I can tell you that her husband did survive. Today they have two beautiful children. But she wrote a song. Maybe you've, you've heard it. It's called Blessings. 
which experiences, which expresses their experiences of rowing against this brain tumor storm. It's a wonderful testimony which captures the essence of the lessons of this particular biblical narrative. It's a song about worshiping God when life is hard. And this is how the lyrics go. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need. You love us way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your love. As if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not, this is not our home. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Jesus calming the storms of our lives. Dear ones, the Lord's in the boat with us. He's with you in your loneliness. He's with you in your worry. Yes, in your worry about the future or your job. He's with you in the troubles you have with your kids, with your husband, with your wife, with your boss. He's with you in your sickness and those of your loved ones. And dear ones, he will be with you still on your deathbed. You know, the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the Christians in Corinth, he refers to these storms of life, he, he calls them slight momentary afflictions. This from a man who suffered much in this world, shipwreck, prison, beatings, persecutions, slight momentary afflictions. Here's the thing. He who simply spoke and calmed a great storm is fully able to hold you up and deliver you when his waves and breakers sweep over you. Slight momentary afflictions compared to the weight of glory 
which will be ours in heaven in the not too far distant future. And you see here, if you call all this to mind and keep it in mind, it is, after all, it's a frequently taught lesson in the Bible. I promise you in the Lord's name, you will far more often than is now the case have occasion to say with wonder and with exhilaration, who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for this wonderful and exhilarating story of our Lord, of our Lord calming the storm. You know, when those times in our lives come around when we're about to be bowled over by our troubles, when we, when we might be brought to complain, when we would be prone to despair so easily as if the Lord is not there and we alone, we're alone, Lord, will you rebuke us? Lord, take us back to this wonderful passage. Cause us to rehearse in our minds and hearts the lessons taught here. May we see afresh that you are indeed with us in the boat of life, that your detour is actually the road, and that you are completely capable of delivering us as you have proved yourself capable of delivering us so many times. Lord, make it so in every heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.